Welcome to the Unhooked Podcast, hosted by author, writer, and recovery advocate, Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from those who have been impacted by and overcome personal adversities, including your host. The goal of the Unhooked Podcast is to take a deep and hopeful look into the experiences related to addiction, alcoholism, grief, mental and emotional health, family dysfunction, codependency, conflict, and other types of personal struggle. The good, the bad, the dramatic, the real areas of life that all of us face. You will hear wisdom from people who fought to persevere through pain, circumstances, and are doing the work to recover. You can contact Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the pod. I am excited to get some new episodes and conversations going for the podcast. I'm excited to introduce this week's conversation with someone who has an amazing story and an interesting realm of work that she's in. I really look up to someone who is well-versed in psychology as well as recovery. So that said, I have invited Gigi Langer to come on the podcast. I hope I said your name right. Um, Gigi holds... Oh, great. Gigi holds a PhD in psychological studies and education and a master's degree in psychology, both from Stanford University. As a professor, she won several awards for her teaching and as Georgia Langer wrote four books for educators, as well as hundreds of articles on professional growth. As a person in recovery, Gigi hasn't had a drug or a drink for over 30 years, although she does overindulge in your deli chocolate and historical novels. We all have something we indulge in. Mine's usually peanut butter. (laughs) Through speeches, retreats, and workshops, she helps thousands of people improve their lives at home and at work. And honestly, that is just something I respect so much. Gigi's latest book began as a memoir, chronicling her three short marriages, career as a professional horseback rider, super interesting, and adventures (laughs) hitchhiking across the north of Spain, all before she turned 38. Her wise husband suggested that instead she write a self-help book with all those, quote, helpful things you say when you counsel people on the phone. At that point, the book Worry Less Now was born. Throughout the five-year writing journey, the right people showed up at just the right time. As often happens, I call that synchronicity to make the book interesting, practical, attractive, and clear. So um, I love fellow authors personally, and especially those who speak a language of recovery. That's kind of what mobilizes my pulse and blood flow because I'm just so passionate about it. Interacting with Gigi (laughs) on social media has been a really positive experience for me. I consider her a friend. I believe in her work. I loved her on the Recovered podcast with Mark Stapleton. So I couldn't wait to get her on for our listeners. So welcome, Gigi. And for our listeners who aren't aware, if you want to just go right into your lead or your story and tell us about yourself. Sure, sure. Um, I think I, I want to start with just, you know, the book. It, um, You know, I was so grateful for all the recovery and growth, which is, you know, explained in the book. But... I just wanted to write something that would take everything I had learned about overcoming negative thinking and self-sabotaging patterns and so on and try to write it in a way that it would work both for a person who's never been to a 12-step program or necessarily in any kind of recovery program. I, I wanted it to work for those people and for people who are in recovery. So that was kind of the genesis of the book. Um, 
But my own story is, geez, I finished that doctorate in Stanford and uh, came to Michigan, and I'd already been divorced twice. And uh, in my, I was almost 40, and I got married the third time. And within nine months here in Michigan, I was uh, going out to bars and you know, finding men and drinking and uh, doing drugs. And, you know, I was not a a good wife at all. (laughs) And I went running to a psychologist saying, what is wrong with this picture? You know, I have this PhD and I'm in my third marriage and I'm doing this behavior. And and he suggested that I might just might have a small alcohol problem. (laughs) And uh, of course, that's you know, that's how I got through grad school really was, you know, smoking dope every night and going to my favorite bar because I didn't drink during the day, but the tension and the stress of being in a program like that with all these smart people, I just, you know, had to take care of the stress somehow. And so um, it just, you know, continued and it was getting worse. And finally, I went for an evaluation um, and the therapist agreed that what I should do I probably had alcoholism. It was in my family. But, um, oh, and by the way, Annie, you're the youngest of six people. I'm the youngest of four. Ah. That that turns out, it, it turns out to be a very confusing environment to grow up in, doesn't it? It sure does. <laughs> so uh, we have that in common. I'll give you two of mine anyway. in exchange. <laughs> so, you know, this, this psychologist I went to, he said, look, you know, if, if you want to know if you have a drinking problem, try having two drinks every day, no more, no less. And I actually did that experiment, and it was kind of odd because in my case, I could discover that occasionally I could have just two drinks and stop. I've never but heard that times, advice before. Yeah, I know. But, it, you know, some I, I've know several people who said, well, you know, I don't know if I have a problem. Maybe I'll try that. And then you end up proving it to yourself because what happened is there, I never could predict when I would have the second drink and then the third one and the fourth one and pick up the stranger and go find the drugs and, you know, drive home drunk. So for me doing that experiment, I had to admit to myself that if I had even one drink, I couldn't predict what I would do and I might well do something really dangerous. So, you know, that became enough of a uh, definition for me. Plus, I was just so sick of the emotional pain because when you're using and numbing ourselves out, whether it's with shopping or work or alcohol or drugs, it we can't have healthy relationships because we don't know what our own feelings are because we've been numbing them out. So we don't know what we need. We can't, you know, we can't be honest. So I always in those relationships, extremely codependent, like my mother who was married to the alcoholic husband and made him the center of her world. I did that with men too. So what I did was just fall in love and then pretend, pretend, pretend and became anything the man wanted. Basically I meant, made the man my higher power, yeah. you know, believing all those songs and movies and everything that promised us, you know, the knight in shining armor and happily ever after. And then when it didn't turn out to be that way, I just grabbed my saddle and my skis and I left <laughs> on the next one, you know, but I was ready to get my life together. And so getting into a 12 step program really, really, really did save me. Um, from an awful lot of pain and angst. (laughs) 
I uh, I did end up after a year sober and a lot of therapy and group therapy and so on, um, divorcing that third husband. And then after uh, a while of being on my own, I met my current husband. We just had our 30 year anniversary. Wow! And I'm and I'm and I met him at a 12 step meeting. And, um, and he amazing. was in re- yeah. I was just telling someone was- today who feels like yeah. over because a long-term marriage ended. I said, you could meet somebody tomorrow or in the next year and be with them longer than you were with the last one and have something healthier. It's right. not ever over. Right. Yeah. And you know, I, I, um, I was so grateful because this was just the right person for me and he's very healthy and so on but then what happened was he'd been sober 30 years I was in the middle of writing my book and guess who starts drinking again him (laughs) no so that was that's chapter six of my book actually Uh, because you know that qualified me for Al-Anon I had always known that the people whose 12-step recovery I admired the most were what we call double winners. Yes. You know, we worked both the alcoholism and the codependency programs. And for me, I also needed to work uh, the 12-step program for adult children of alcoholics. Yes, that's what the ACOA. I first learned that double yeah. winner term from my son when he... <laughs> talked about that because he had gone into recovery in LA and then had, you know, we have several family members. Our family passes addiction and dysfunction sideways, back and forth, up and down, all through the generation. <laughs> um, it is just a webbed tree. So he is all kinds yes, of double yes. So um, it's definitely, the there's a yeah. program for everyone. And whether it's 12 step or not, getting into something that is a process that works yes. for us, it's been 12 steps as well. I love ACOA. Yeah. I typically attend Naranon. But it's, I think, mm-hmm. gradually kind of like turning a ship around. It is life-saving. Yes, it is. It really is. And and here was the surprise. You know, I'm happily married. Um, finally, I've got some sobriety. And I still had a lot of negative thinking. Yeah. And um, anxious. And I still had the perfectionism at work and the workaholism. And I was in therapy. You know, and I was starting to um, acquire some spiritual practices and so on. But it was surprising to me that I needed to do more work to get a handle on what the hell was going on in my head. You yeah. know, um, so I, I, you know, kind of went on a search, and and I, I. I named those negative thoughts, I call them whispered lies. You know, the in recovery, people talk about the so oh so helpful committee in our head. Yeah. That whispers to us, you know, all these helpful things like, oh, man, you're not going to make it this time. And oh, if this happens, I'll never be able to stand it. And, you know, or if they don't straighten up their lives, I can never be happy. And, you know, those whispered lies just create all this stress and, and strain on our bodies and our minds and all that fear and worry. And then, you know, we can't make good decisions when we're in that fight or flight mode. We can't make good decisions. And very likely we turn to things to numb ourselves out, you know, even if it's semi-legal, like, you know, binge watching TV or something. (laughs) So um, that's how I kind of launched on this idea that 
um, you know, over the years, I went through multiple layers of healing, different, um, you know, kind of what we might call the shadow self or those, yes. you know, some people call them the core issues there, you know, the things about or it's self-esteem and schema. There's yeah. schema therapy and shadow work. All of that is, that's kind of like, I don't know, for yeah. me personally, when I did that work, that was what finally led me to stop going back to unconscious behaviors where I would think, how did I get back here? Because I, that you have to yeah. do that subconscious. Yeah. yeah. So for anyone who might be listening you know, my thought was, oh, my God, if I start letting these ghosts out of the closet, you know, all the stuff that I've been pushing down and drinking over and sexing over, if I let, you know, if I rip the Band-Aid off, boom, they're all going to come out at once and smother me. And I'm happy to report that did not happen at all. Oh, good. <laughs> you know, um, and, and I will use the term higher power, but I, it, it, in, in my book, I encourage people to define that in a broad Broadway, and I offer 40 different terms and ways of thinking about it, but it, it needs to be something bigger than my own fear. So it could oh, be my true self, good. you know? That's really good. Say that again. Yeah. And so that force that I'll call a higher power um, sort of regulated what I became aware of when. So certain things about my past I wasn't allowed to know about until I had three or four or five years of a strong recovery and spiritual program. You know, it's almost like having a great trainer who says, okay, she's signed up for training, you know, first we're going to get sober, you know, so I, you know, I went to therapy and did groups and, you know, learned about being friends with healthy women, which I'd never done before, uh, always was with men. Um, and then slowly the dysfunctional family layer started coming up, you know, mm -hmm. and the codependency. And then I, you know, I worked with a therapist with the inner child stuff and joined the adult children of alcoholics and started finding more tools for that. And then lo and behold, five years sober, who knew, but uh, I realized I'd heard something on the radio and, and I realized that there had been some, uh, you know, really inappropriate sexual touching at the least in my childhood. And, and I remembered that stuff and I had the great therapist and the wonderful sexual healing group and so on. Um, so what I've loved about this journey is that every layer, I, of course, initially on any time we see something for the first time, we go through the shock and awe phase, right? Yeah. <laughs> this can't be true of me, you know? Yeah. Um, but once we accept the fact that there is a part of us that's carrying around some wounds and patterns and whispered lies and old stuff that's just getting in our way, then, you know, it becomes rewarding, you know, after we've had a, enough rounds of, oh, here we go through another healing yeah. layer. But when I finish it, I've reclaimed more of my true self, more courage, more power, you know, just more ability to help others and way more happiness and peace of mind, you know? Every time it, you so get more of that, it's like you yeah. get around increases. Yeah. It doesn't mean that when a layer comes up or a situation that comes up in our lives, that's hard. And of course that happens to all of us all the time. You know, it doesn't mean that it's, we love it, 
but eventually I've come to see that, oh, here's a whole set of whispered lies that I hadn't dealt with. For example, about my husband's drinking, I had a whispered lie that all men hurt women because my father consistently hurt my mother. And Peter, my husband, was the one man I thought would never hurt me. And when he started drinking, I went back into all the old whispered lies from my childhood. And I went to Al-Anon and worked the steps and did the inventory and worked with, I don't know if you know much about radical forgiveness. Yes. And a guy named Colin Tipping. Mm-hmm. That was very helpful to me. And these are all tools that are in the book. Some of them are too complex to explain like oh, that good. one. Oh, good. I love but- that it's all in there. It's not just a recovery book. It's a recovery book that's written by a professor who has lived it and applied it. And I love that. Exactly. Yeah. And because I'm a former teacher educator, you know, it's got a lot of story in it, and I and it also has, like, a little bit of research about each of the techniques. But then, because I'm a teacher at heart, it, it has guided exercises. You know, it doesn't just say, oh, sit down and meditate, or it doesn't just say, here's how to do mindfulness. It actually gives you resources and walks you through it. Um, because I really wanted people... You don't have to use all the 50 tools, but there's going to be some in there that are going to be absolutely perfect, I hope, for whatever a person is struggling with, something they want to control that they can't control, whether it's themselves or someone else. Yeah, you know, it's not even, and and I don't mean to do this as an an insulting, self-righteous way, but it's not just a book Mm -hmm. to apply for yourself. A book like this, if you have a best friend that's calling you in a constant struggle with one bad relationship after another, or a sister, brother, friend, you know, whoever, a book like this is a really good gift to say, I can listen and be there for you as much as possible, but here's something Mm -hmm. extra that you can, you know, you can look into too. It's, I I think these books are, you know, not only something we can apply to ourselves, but to encourage other people to kind of open up to the process. Right, right. And um, I didn't, people listening might be wondering, well, what the heck happened with her husband when he started drinking? (laughs) So let me finish that story. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, you know, I found out again that my upset around that was of course worried for him, but it was really self-centered too. I was worried about me, you know, and that was fueled by the old whispered lie, all men hurt women, which wasn't necessarily true of my husband. So I had to go through all this forgiveness work with my father. My, I did have, you know, the confrontation and the assertive, I did my work in Al-Anon so that the one thing I've learned in all of this is we cannot address a problem or have an assertive conversation if we're still freaked out and resentful and unhappy about something. We have to do our own work and that's what the tools are. They kind of stream what I call in the book, loving power, um, you know, sane thoughts, uh, meditation, the, the breath, um, cognitive reframing, you know, affirmations, uh, all the stuff that will help kind of dissolve all those whispered lies and the fears and worries. So that when I do get ready to have a conversation, for example, with my husband about the drinking, I could be operating from a place of calm, centered sanity. Yes, sanity. Yeah. And that, right. And that would be 
uh, much better received. It wasn't an easy conversation. It didn't solve the problem, but I wasn't going into the conversation hysterical. So we're not going to solve you know, we're not going to solve any problems in our lives unless we take responsibility for how we're reacting to it and say, okay, how do I help myself settle down, get some sanity, get some power, get some calmness. And and one big point I make in the book is that it is not a do-it-yourself program. Any of this, it needs to be with at least a therapist and ideally with a group of people who are also working toward the same goals that you are, Even whether like it be mastermind. Yeah. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be a 12-step program. It can be all kinds of things. Um, I have two groups that are using my book in, in their own book study groups and going through each chapter, and, and I'm preparing a workbook. The audiobook's just about to come out, and it has kind of a workbook with it, but... Um, it's not something we can just say, I'm going to read the book and I'm going to fix the problem on my own. We, we really need to be with at least a therapist. But anyway, the way it worked out for me, I did get a, a sponsor in Al-Anon and I worked all the steps on it. And, um, my husband turns out to be able to be a person who can have two drinks, no more. Okay. Believe it or not. And, uh, and that was a huge relief for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was, you know, a big trial for me and in our marriage because I did not want to be my mother all over again. <laughs> not at all. You know, as a little uh, side note, I sat in on a lecture today from a medical director who was teaching on alcohol and alcoholism, alcohol use disorder, whichever. And I learned some of the things that, um, well, first of all, that alcohol is ethanol and the things that it does to your body because it's technically a poison. So your body has to detox from it. Even if you're having one mm -hmm. or two drinks, anytime there's exposure, your body's kind of basically processing poison out of it. And he talked about the process of detox, not having anything much to do with recovery because detox is basically to oh. separate someone from a chemical and keep them from dying. And I didn't realize that alcohol also affects blood to where your blood coagulates differently. And if you have long-term use, you might, you know, you could trip and fall and cut yourself and bleed, like bleed out. Oh. So some of these things are wow. really big issues. But I thought it was so interesting that one of the questions that another person listening asked this doctor was, you always hear somebody can have two drinks a day or they even tell you know, other doctors will say it's calming and it's healthy and whatever, but I've recently heard that was a myth. What is your comment? And he was, I love the way he was such a layman, even though he is, you know, intimidating with his intelligence and education. He said, there's, I really don't have a one size fits all for that. What would I tell an 18 year old that asked that question or maybe a pregnant woman? What would I tell someone mm -hmm. in their 20s that has, you know, two drinks a day for six months and then doesn't again, They're, that's different. What would I tell a 38-year-old woman who is an adult child of an alcoholic and her father maybe used alcohol and then was abusive or hurt her or her siblings or mother or something? It's different for everyone. And he said if it was a cardiologist, mm. they would look at it one way with the chemicals. And if it's, you know, mm. what he would tell his own sons. So it's basically you kind of have to figure that out for yourself in the face of health and consequences. Yeah. It was, 
you know, it's interesting in the conversation I had with my host and I said, you know, <clears throat> it, the two drinks would be okay, but if it escalates, you know, and that is the issue, does it escalate into needing to numb ourselves, yeah. you know, and, and that's whether it's shopping or whatever, because then we stop taking responsibility for our own emotions and our own reactions and we're just numbing them out. And then it's almost impossible. Well, it's, I would say it is impossible to grow when we're not being honest with ourselves, you know. Uh, it's, and it's I think when it starts situation. kind of redirecting your thinking, I don't know if you've seen the show Mom. Yes. But I, have you seen that before? I love it so much. It's a, What is it? It's, it's a TV show, a comedy called Mom. Oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. love it so much. Anna Ferris and her, she and her mother are in a 12-step program and yeah. you know, it's got a lot of recovery. But there was one on the other day where her mother relapsed and drank a lot and she got into pills or whatever. And then she had a DUI and called the daughter in the middle of the night and said, will you come get me? I'm in jail. I got a DUI. So the daughter was like, oh, okay, yes, I'll come get you. You know, she had had a relatively short relapse. It was like a couple of weeks. And I think the daughter thought this was her wake up call. So before she hung up the phone, the mom said, and just so you know, I was fine to drive, but this police officer was just an angry person. So the daughter kind of realized, oh my goodness, she's still in this relapse because her thinking is not yeah. in a place of ownership. It's in a place of blame. So she said, is this, yeah. so you're telling me all these things happening as somebody else's fault. And the mom just continued to, you know, yes, this officer was just wanting to meet quota and pick on somebody. So she said, I'm going to let you stay there. And she's like, you know, Christy, you, you oh, can't leave me here. And her. was wow. mad and there was just no ownership. And I think when you start to dull your clarity of introspection mm -hmm. and self-awareness and your own responsibility, that's another issue that tells you this is more than two drinks. This is now, you know, I've got a problem. You're right. Yeah. When I had my first evaluation, when I went to my former husband said, oh, I don't have a problem. I'll go have an evaluation. <laughs> and the guy looked at me and he said, well, the number one symptom is denial. And the fact that you have it in your family, you know, is another warning signal. Uh, I was sitting at a meeting today and a gal was talking about her, the sneaky, deceptive nature of addiction. And she likened it to a dragon. And I, I hadn't heard this before, but I... Um, you know, certainly they make you afraid and crazy, but whether it's the mental obsession to drink or the physical craving, however that happens, it's like the defense against the dragon eating us up is to get into a recovery program. And it's, you know, they say it's one day at a time. So it's like you go to a meeting or you, and you pray and meditate and you, you do your, you know, service work, whatever it is you do in your program, you're following your program. But like for that day, we get that dragon. It's like a, um, you know, inflatable dragon. And for that day, it's kind of, you know, all the airs out of it and it's down. But then the next day it's full again and <laughs> ready to, ready to talk you into drinking or if it's food overeating or if it's codependence, you know, controlling something and it's right there whispering these lies in your ear. You know, you can't stand it if this happens and you're going to have to change that. And so, you know, we need daily tools that we can use to keep our um, head straight and our, and our clarity and our wisdom and our connection with 
a what I call a higher power. Um, yeah. So it's it really talks to you in your I, own voice is the worst part. Pardon? The the when when they, when it's so insidious that draw and that craving yeah. back to the addiction or alcoholism and it starts to become what you think about or plan your day around and it speaks to you and justifies exactly. itself or comes up with reasoning yeah. that it's needed whether it's needed yeah. because you had a good day or you had a bad day it speaks right. to you in your own voice. And it's interesting that at most of my experiences with twelve step programs so. I mean, and a lot of other spiritual and philosophical and Buddhist things and so on. Meditation, um, law of attraction. That's how I wrote my book, by the way, with law of attraction. I did, I did my vision boards and everything, and it, it worked. I got a book. Um, but all those tools, you know, it was a surprise to me that once I got rid of the craving for alcohol, then my, I had all these old thinking patterns that were self-destructive, you know, yeah. All the whispered lies. You've got to work harder or you're going to get fired. You know, you have to be perfect or no one will like you. Uh, you can't stand it if someone isn't nice to you. All these unenforceable rules, this guy from Stanford calls them. You know, we set up all these rules. This should be this way and that way. And we're powerless over those things. Yeah. So we've got to figure out ways to let them go. Um I know something, I liked a lot of energy work things too. I used um, tapping, the EFT, and I had a lot of cranial sacral work and Reiki. Um, I really love Pema Chodron, whose book, When Things Fall Apart. Yes, when she talks about the hot loneliness. I love that description of those feelings that we run from. I even watched a, I watched, I have some reality shows that are kind of my, um, my vice, so to speak. And I watched mm-hmm. one the other day where a man on there in a reunion was talking about, I was surprised he was openly admitting that he had become addicted to Al- to Adderall during one of the seasons. And he kept saying, I was dealing with this and that and trying to get my law career going and this other career going. And another girl said, well, why didn't you just sit down and deal with the things you hate about yourself instead of running into that? Oh. And she said, he said, wow. he's like, look dazed or stunned that she said it. And he said, <laughs> I don't know how. And it's that sitting yeah. with that hot loneliness. I, somebody posted today that some of the worst feelings crash in for no longer than eight minutes. And I don't know if that's proven or evidence or not, mm. but really, mm. if you'll just sit and be with that, even if it's trauma, yeah. it doesn't last forever and you're not going to explode. Yes, but that's what we're afraid of, that you know we can't handle the feelings. And the, the more we deny the feelings or numb them out, the less able we are to handle them. So then the more we, <laughs> it's a very vicious cycle. Very vicious. It is so vicious um, until something stops yeah. us in our tracks. And people always say it has yeah. to be a rock bottom moment or something. But sometimes it can be mm-hmm. an aha moment of what am I doing? Why am I here? Yeah. Why am I around this? You know, I, I'm miserable. It, whether it's yeah. an aha moment or a terrible experience that mm-hmm. shakes you awake. You know, when you get into that cycle, yeah. you're kind of leading your life unconsciously and a pathology like that, something has to wake you up. Yeah. And you know, Annie, I think I've discovered that it is completely upside down to, to get over things that are self-destructive. It's, in my experience, has been completely upside down from what the, the quote, the world would say. 
and and most of the times when we have a problem, we start trying to work on the problem directly to control it, fix it, and so on. And, you know, for years and years in school that worked and it worked, sometimes it works, but in relationships, quite often it doesn't. And so the idea of stepping back and saying, before I, I want this situation in my life to work, work out, okay? But instead of trying to bang my head against the wall to make it work out, I'm going to step back and stream into me some, if it's spiritual or psychological or philosophical, or it could be meditating, it could be energy work, but it's almost as if when I'm messed up over a problem, my, if I think of my body as a channel from the top to the bottom, and that goodness can and and wisdom and clarity can come into me and it can flow through me and out into the world. But if I'm all clogged up with worry and whispered lies and it's like my whole channel is clogged up and there's nothing I'm going to do in the world that's going to be very effective or helpful because I'm all messed up with fear and worry and all those clogged up. So, it's ironic that rather than trying to fix a thing out in the world, I need to work on me. And that means that I need to use whatever tools, therapy, programs, etc., to clear my channel, to dissolve all those whispered lies and all those fears and all those worries. And that's the big surprising thing. It's an Al-Anon thing. Of course, you don't try to tackle the person and change it, you'll work on yourself, right? Yes. You re- you don't know that going in. You think you're going into those rooms or going to a counselor to fix this person and then life will be fine. But really that's not exactly. how it works. You begin to work yourself out and then you, you yes. begin to have peace and that spills over onto everything else. Yeah. That's hard yeah. to realize at first. It is. And it's hard to trust in because it's almost magical that, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, um, you know, I was so discouraged about relationships when I went through my third divorce. Then I thought I would never be happily married. There had been two other long-term relationships. And, you know, one of the things I did was write a little affirmation, you know, thank you, God, for uh, bringing me a healthy and happy relationship with a man. And, you know, just affirming how we want the future to be, but then trusting that in some way it's going to work out if I keep taking care of my own business, you know, getting me as healthy as possible. Right. Um, it's, it's so powerful. And shortly after doing that and after a lot of therapy and stuff, I did meet Peter and I've been very happy. Now it's not like that every way, but somehow if we put our energy in the right place, which is with peace, calmness, uh, trust, <laughs> self-honesty, willingness to let go of old patterns, willingness to do the work to let go of the old patterns. Um, we There's nothing to stop us from having any dream we would ever have. That is the truth. Let me ask you this. With some of the stuff you went through in school, I think it's so interesting. I'm a big fan of Dr. Drew, so I listen to all of his podcasts, and he talks about some of those insecurities when he was in medical school and residency and things like that. So when you were studying and you – you know, were around people that you say were so intelligent. Do you feel that you had, you know, some sort of imposter syndrome or was it a deep rooted mm. insecurity based on trauma or family structure? 
And could you explain those? Mm. Well, I certainly, you know, the family structure was definitely a big contributor to low self-esteem. You know, being the youngest, you're sort of lost in the shuffle. And the thing that I grabbed onto was getting good grades because I was the only one that was doing that in my family. So, you know, looking smart and being smart, I had a lot of my security wrapped up in that, that little image. Um, at the same time, when I made a mistake, my father would say, Gigi, how can you be so goddamn dumb? Oh. And, you know, and so I had this thing, I'm dumb, going on. Yeah. And then, um, you know, getting into grad school, I definitely, I mean, when you grow up so insecure because you feel like you're not worth people's attention because they're too sick to give you the attention you need, yep. there's a big gaping hole inside, you know, and we try to fill it with achievements and men and this and that. So definitely, you know, I thought getting that doctorate, man, that was going to fill that hole. And and so at some level, I had a lot of emotional security riding on that. <laughs> and I ended up in a, a, a wonderful program there with wonderful people. And I, at first, I didn't have the background that I really needed in terms of statistics and psychology. So I was terrified. But then I worked harder. It seems like the terror worked for a long time to help me achieve, and then it stopped working because it started eroding me, you know, the motivation by fear of yeah. failure. And That's almost like what addiction sure. does, or if somebody's on, you know, some sort yeah. of Adderall or speed or something, it works great at first, but then it comes back and bites yeah. you and destroys everything it was doing for you. Yeah, absolutely. And... um you know, I didn't, I didn't, um, I just was not self-aware at that time. I was, you know, I, I don't know if this is true for everyone, but it seems like somewhere in the late 30s, early 40s, there's a waking up period. <laughs> because yeah. quite often all, all the old coping strategies stop working yeah. in some way, you know, and they start backfiring on us. So, you know, being exactly who the man wants, that doesn't work. And then, you know, overachieving starts, you know, the gastric problems and the heart problems. Yes, <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's um, at some point, you know, we just got to wake up and take responsibility for our own happiness and not, and not blame the world anymore. By the way, you know, with your um, story also, and, I'm sure you've heard this, but it was one of the most empowering things. When I first went to Adult Children of Alcoholics and I read all those characteristics of children who grew up in adults who grew up in alcoholic and dysfunctional homes, I thought, oh, my God, this this is awful. I'll never get over all these. And then someone said, you are not to blame for what happened to you in the past but you are responsible to heal it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was a lifesaver to me because it, it offered the possibility that I wasn't stuck with all of this to repeat all these messes the rest of my life that I could change and that there were tools and people and programs and therapists that could help me change. And I wasn't stuck being a, a screw up the rest of my life, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's definitely that really something helpful. that to take responsibility for. And, you know, I've I had two phone calls come in today from, you know, one was a friend, one was a family member about terrible circumstances. And there was just no 
ability to see, but I could come up with a solution and it begins with making a decision, which is the hardest part. I'm going to decide to recover or heal or make the best of this terrible hand I've been dealt. And that decision is really the hardest step because people get so stuck Mm. and pulling you into, they want to pull comfort into the crisis instead of saying, okay, this is how it is. I will radically accept it. Doesn't mean I like Mm -hmm. it or want it to stay this way, but it's not going to change until I look at it as it is, face reality, and then what can Mm -hmm. I do? So yeah, Yeah. definitely. um, It's definitely life changing once you realize we are all responsible for our own lives. Mm -hmm. You know, when people say, well, you know, I don't know where to start. And, And certainly people don't like walking into some kind of a group typically although that would be one of the best things to recommend, you know, certainly going to a therapist or a counselor. But one of the simplest things, you know, I had to look at the research on the different suggestions I made in the book. And of course, one of the most obvious tools and the research is all out there now is meditation and mindfulness. And oh my gosh, the brain scans of people who even have a, you know, 10 minutes a day, meditation or mindfulness kind of practice, the brain scans show that the flight or fight or flight part of the brain, the part of the brain that's responsible for anxiety and fear and terror, that part of the brain shrinks in people who meditate. And, you know, I, after my mom died, I know I run tight and uh, I was in the middle of writing the book and I had another book in education in the hopper and I was kind of a hot mess and <laughs> and I had read about the mindfulness um, based stress reduction which was developed by John Kabat-Zinn at University of Massachusetts. Yes. I just watched an interview. And it, pardon? I said I just watched an interview of his. He's so calm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and what I loved about that was the mindfulness came from a medical model the mindfulness-based stress reduction. And I took their eight-week course in person with a person who'd been trained because I was such a hot mess. (laughs) And, you know, I can see why they get the research results they do because, and, and most of it was doing gentle stretches and mindful breathing. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't anything real mysterious about it. Right. Except, having the desire to bring calm and wisdom into your life by establishing 10 to 20 minutes a day. And now we have those wonderful apps. One of my favorites is Insight Insight Timer. Yes. And it's a, f- a free app and you can, you know, how long do you want to meditate? 10 minutes, 20? You know, what topic? Do you want music? Do you not want music? Do you want it guided? Do you not want it guided? You know, I mean, it, it's very easy to establish a, a, a meditation practice today. And that would be for anyone listening who feels like they're kind of, you know, casting about for a simple way to start. That would be the simplest thing to do. Just meditate using something 10 to 20 minutes a day. I want to just validate two points you've made. The first one is when you said Mm -hmm. a lot of people have a hard time walking into a group. Um, I really felt like I had no outer layer of skin or shock absorbers when it came to walking into any type of group setting. I had been, you know, born into Mm. a big 
chaotic family full of toxic layers and attracted that the rest of my life, whether it was friend groups, other parent groups, church, work, whatever. So when I walked into my first support meeting, I actually went there to study it and try to start one in our area, but I was going to write on them as well. And I stayed for five years because it was the most peaceful, (laughs) loving, calm environment I'd ever been. It wasn't anything weird where people were, you know, grabbing me and trying to, um, forced me to believe anything new age or be close to anybody, but it was just so calm. And it was the finest people from people like, you know, your line of work professors, there were judges and doctors, Mm -hmm. housewives, whatever. And that were there with a positive regard for each other. Nobody had armor on or a mask. There was no pedestals and everybody was introspective Mm -hmm. and it changed my life. Even just going for a different reason, I I never left. And then I finally started one, but I would say that's why I encourage people to go because if anybody struggled with group dynamics after everything I'd been through and so much failure and social and group setting, it was the one place I truly found peace. And the other thing Mm -hmm. I wanted to piggyback on is that um, there's a study, I I have like an obsession with epigenetics and studying all of that and that we can actually heal our brain and our DNA, like you said. I, I just posted a video the other day by Nicole Labor. It's the Neurobiology of Addiction. It's on YouTube. It's like 23 minutes. And she oh, talks about okay. how people will say, you know, somebody's brain is damaged by addiction or alcoholism. How long does it take? A year of being sober? You know, two years? She said what speeds up that healing process is two things. Positive, kind, safe connection with others and a spiritual practice, whatever that higher power is to have something meditative and calming in place. You know, like you said, your higher power needs to be greater than the force of your fear or your chaos or your problems or whatever. Mm -hmm. Having those things, something spiritual in place to calm that and give you hope and faith and get you out of your own head and then safe connection to others. If you don't have that, find that. It's available. If, If you have to meet all new strangers, those things can actually heal your DNA. Wow, that's huge. That was huge for me. And when issues like that, that along with one of the promises of the recovery program, when I was told that when you're in a family situation that's out of control and there's a lot of players and a lot of dysfunction, which makes it seem like a lot of impossible, somebody said to me, if one person in a family situation does work to improve, the family situation is bound to improve. It's going to get better. If you do the work to heal and recover, step away, work on yourself, it's going to start gradually changing. Those things were like helicopter groups for me. We see that all the time, don't we? It's that upside downness. It's the upside down aspect of it. We're like, what? Work on me and they're going to get better? But it's the way. Um, I love that. Uh, research was the gal's name Nicole Labor. Yep, she is a um, okay, some kind of a doctor. I can't remember. I believe from the University of Addiction. Yeah. She puts it in great, yeah. interesting layman's terms. It's a it's nice. the neurobiology of addiction, and it and I found mm-hmm. it on YouTube. The one that was twenty three minutes. I shared it on my page as well. Okay. It was just thanks. It thanks. was so interesting. She also yeah. goes into a segment of how once we put chemicals on our dopamine. It raises those levels and needs. So things that used to interest you and give you that roller coaster adrenaline, whether it was maybe you were into softball or crafts or book club, whatever, your interest is no longer raised by those things because that dopamine dopamine needs those chemicals. And she talks about how people with opiates will relapse 
because they've taken alcohol in again. And many times they'll say, well, alcohol was never my problem. And she says, yeah. it's not an alcohol or heroin or opiate or chemical problem. It's a dopi- dopamine problem. So she explains yeah. all of that. Those questions I hear in meetings and from parents and family members mm-hmm. so often. When will they get their mind right? Or what's going to be the effect if this yeah. drinks after yeah. coming off a of heroin? And she puts it in really clear terms. So what you're saying mm-hmm. is, is backed up by a lot of our fellow sure. people in recovery. That's great. So two things um, I wanted to add. There's, you know, when she mentions the spiritual practices, I think some people have the misconception that you have to believe in a fixed thing, which I think, you know, once you hang around enough and you don't have to, but um, it's like, it's got to be this thing that I believe in and I have trouble believing in it. But what you described when you walked into the, a room where people were recovering and working a program to get healthy and those people were being loving and caring and had no agenda, that for many people, that oasis becomes initially their not like the people are going to control them and tell them what to do, but that oasis in that room and that culture becomes like a higher power in the sense that there's hope here. People are nice here. Um, What they're doing is working. Maybe it would work for me. So um, just going into one of those uh, meetings is really important. And, you know, because the group thing's so important, I did put some guidelines. If, if, If you don't go to a 12 step meeting where it's all set up to protect the group from being from falling prey to what a lot of groups end up, you know, with money and control and problems. Um, if you're looking for another group or to set up a group, I gave some guidelines in there. Um, okay. And then another way, the spiritual thing, there's another way, and you probably know the golden key, but in the last couple of minutes, um, if people are looking for, again, aside from meditation, going to meetings, using all these tools, you just want to start something. The The concept of overthinking and worrying, and when there's a situation going on and my mind is obsessing about it, right? And my mind tells me if I just think about it hard enough, I'll be able to control it and fix it because how else is it going to get fixed, you know, if I don't have the power of my own mind? Well, The upside down part is when we say, oh, I'm not going to fix it by thinking about it constantly. I have to think about something that has some power in it bigger than my fear. So the golden key technique is kind of a standard one in some 12-step programs. But I find it really useful, and your listeners might too, and it's as simple as this. You notice your mind is worrying about the thing that you wish you could control. And you don't beat yourself up. You just say, oh, look at that. I'm worrying. And then you just move your mind away from the worry and toward any thought or image that gives you hope. If you people who have a spiritual program might, you know, think of God or spirit or universe. But it could be a a beautiful image of a rose that connects you with beauty, which is also a very pure Uh, source of power. Um, It could be a phrase, all is well, just a reassuring phrase. Like, uh, you know, when I listened to your talk, you said, this isn't over yet. This will work out. 
Yeah. There's a path for peace. So the point is you choose any little phrase that you're going to use when you notice yourself worrying. And the minute you notice yourself thinking and overthinking, you just notice it and gently say the other phrase instead and fill your mind with that. And then, of course, your mind's going to go back to worrying, right? Because that's what it does. And then you're going to catch it and say, oh, and you say that, you know, you use your word or your phrase or image. Right. And that technique is amazingly powerful. It because, is. And it's again, it's upside down, isn't it? Because it's don't think about the thing you're trying to fix. Think about some power instead, some goodness instead. And sure enough, if the thing I was worried about doesn't end up working out in the most amazing way. <laughs> yeah. But I have I have been known to have to change my thought from the negative to the positive sometimes several times a minute. <laughs> right. You know, that's yeah. a really powerful practice. It's like, it's mantras. You, I mean, it's not, you don't have to sit yeah. around and chant all day, but it's mantras, you know, that you tell yeah. yourself and they, they kind of start to boost your belief system. Exactly. What we can reprogram our minds. And, you know, there's these guys, um, Rick Hansen with the Buddha brain and Joe Dispenza about the reprogramming our I minds. Love and it, there's, Joe there's no, yeah, there's, it's not his stuff. There's no spiritual component to it. It's just, you feed your brain good stuff and it'll rewire the wiring and it's not going to give you such negative stuff. I mean, it's doesn't, as simple doesn't as that. that makes sense. There was a study that I actually yeah. included in in a chapter of one of, of my second book, and it, it was when oh, good. it was done about college roommates, and it was, I forget what university it was. It's in the book. I included it all in. It talks about how people who had moved in with sour, negative, complaining roommates that were down oh. on the world and down on themselves were contagious, and they eventually, you know, rather quickly took on that negative mindset. So what you're telling yourself, wow. what you're putting yourself around spills into who you become. Yep, exactly, exactly. And there are so many wonderful things that can help boost us and believe in, you know, in hope and goodness that in spite of what everything looks like around us. Um, That's right. The, this, you just have to make the decision. I want better. I want mm -hmm. a better thought process. I want a better system mm -hmm. of life. I want to be a better person. I want to feel better. And then gradually over time, it starts to bottleneck in that direction. Yeah, you're right. The, the critical mass. And that's hard to believe when you're sitting at the bottom of the, <laughs> of the tunnel, you yeah. know. Uh, anyway, it's, it's a wonderful gift we have that we don't have to be stuck, that our, that our minds and our, and our attitudes are adjustable and malleable and can be made, you know, more positive. We're not stuck with anything in our lives, really. It's all about our attitude. It really is. That's where, that's really where it begins. And some things you can't prevent or avoid and you just have to get through, but you can definitely change your perspective of things and that will improve everything. Yes, absolutely. Well, I love yeah, everything uh, you write about and I don't know if there's anything else you want to include, but I want everyone to check out your book and especially when the audio book comes out and do the workbook for yourself, for a friend, if you've got an annoying mm -hmm. negative mother, if you've got somebody else that's dealing with worry. <laughs> Whatever the issue you want to work out or think somebody else might need to, I think this book is a perfect place to start. Yeah, so worry less now. <laughs> right. And uh, I, yeah, I have friends who bought 
you know, they bought one and they read it and then they said, okay, I'm buying this for all my family members. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. You know, we have, yeah. I work in behavioral health during the day. I do um, uh-huh. recovery writing and podcasting and all of that. Um, that's my like my side job oh. and my passion. And, and I am okay. sponsored and published. So I do that for a living as well. But I actually work for a medical organization doing um, some specializing. And there are signs up everywhere when I work from home. But when I go into the office, there are signs up in the corridors. And it's, it's really healthy, mindful things. And one thing that we see often is be here now. And it's so nice to be walking mm. through and I might be caught in my head worrying about a presentation or something mm-hmm. on the schedule later or a phone call I know I'm going to get. And I just bump into that sign and it reminds me, be here now, where you're mm-hmm. at now. Pull it back to yep. now. Yep. Yeah, because right now is pretty darn good. Yeah, and I <laughs> love the things the title <laughs> of your book. It's not just worry less. It's uh-huh. presence and mindfulness of yeah. where, where are things now. Yep, yep. Well, I hope it's helpful for people. And certain, it's doing great on Amazon. It's gotten really good reviews from big reviewers and so on. And um, the audio book is coming out in about two or three weeks. So that's exciting. Yeah. Well, good. And how can people find you, whether you have a website, Facebook, social media, email, if you can give all of that to the listeners? Yeah. It's um, Gigi is spelled G-I-G-I. And my last name is Langer, L-A-N-G-E-R. So my website is simple, gglanger.com. And I have all the links for buying the book there. um, And I'll send you in the U.S. I'll send free shipping, a personalized signed copy to you from there. Um, and then I'm, I'm on Facebook a lot. I do a little bit with Instagram, uh, a little bit with Twitter, but mostly Facebook and my website. So gglanger.com is okay. where you can find me. And I would love to hear from you. Uh, so we'll see how these things play out. That's Perhaps right. we'll be in touch. Reach out and I'll make sure that your links and all of your information are on my pages as well. And other than that, um, I hope everybody checks it out, especially if you are dealing with worry or some of those shadow subconscious issues that lead you back to patterns over and over. We can certainly all relate to that. Gigi is doing wonderful Mm -hmm. evidence-based work and she is surely qualified and well-educated. So more than anything, I really appreciate you coming on and being open and sharing and doing this work. I know it's not easy to open your life and be transparent about recovery as well as what works. But I'm so grateful for people like you that are doing this. And again, I can't thank you enough. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Annie. Thank you. Thank you. And um, we'll see one another on Facebook. (laughs) That's right. All right. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Unhooked Podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. Annie's books, Unhooked and Unbroken, can be found in Amazon, Cokesbury, BarnesandNoble.com, and wherever books are sold. You can find her work by searching Annie Highwater on Facebook. If you have enjoyed the Unhooked podcast, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to the Unhooked podcast. Mm-hmm.